0: Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.
1: I'm with Caroline Moorhead, the author of A Train in Winter, which is published um, at the very beginning of September. Um, And A Train in Winter tells a story basically of 230 French women uh, resistors who in January 1943 were deported um, from detention camps across France, um, well in occupied France, to Auschwitz. And it's the first time that the story of these women has ever been told. And I wondered what prompted you to write the book and why, how did you find out about the story of these women whose history has sort of been forgotten?
2: Originally I thought I would write um, a biography of Charlotte Delbo who is quite crucial to the book. She was a poet, um, and she was a, an assistant to a theatrical producer in Paris. And she got caught up with the resistance, and she was one of the women who was deported. And when she came back, she wrote a book called Auschwitz and After, which is mostly in verse. And then it seemed it wasn't sort of enough of a rounded story. And my wonderful editor, Chateau Penny Hoare, said, why don't you write about the whole group of them, because it makes a better story. And she was actually right. Um, the story of these women and their friendship is really what what makes them different.
1: And so, why has their story never really been told before, do you think?
2: I think there are several reasons for that. One is I think that, the until relatively recently, the French were very unkeen to examine what they did during the war, years of occupation. and the resistors were actually picked up not by the Germans and the Gestapo but by the French themselves um, so really this story is not about the Germans at all it's about the French and until the 70s um, very little was ever written in France about um, what has been going on I think that's one reason and the other reason I think is that it's a small story about a small group of people and the fact that they were women funnily enough meant they were even less well known because immediately after the war men resistors were quite celebrated in France. But the women who came back um, very much said, well we did what we would always do anyway and you know, what we did was we looked after resistors on the run we carried messages we helped put up posters and we never thought that was anything very special so they sort of came back and they disappeared into the background. I think that's another reason. And then what was quite lucky was that I learnt that there were six still alive, um, and I interviewed four of them. And certainly as good, I tracked down the families of a lot of the others, and went all over France and found people who were now in their 60s and 70s, and whose last memory of their mother had been when She had been arrested in 1942, and these families had pictures and photographs of these women in the 30s, and letters and diaries and papers, Um, and that was wonderful.
1: And can you tell me a little bit more about the story of these women? I mean, um, in particular, sort of how, how and why were they arrested, and then... Why were they deported at that particular time? And why, were they only, why was there only once during, throughout the four years of the German occupation, why was it only once that they sent a train of um, women resistors to Auschwitz?
2: The attitude of the Germans, and therefore the French who were helping them towards the resistance, changed as the war went on. It was relatively slow to get going. Um, 1940-41 there were just small actions all over the place. People put up posters they wrote slogans on the walls but they didn't do very much beyond that. In 1941 it all changed and individual groups largely but not entirely started by the Communist Party began doing armed sabotage actions and a number of Germans were in fact killed and Again, it was the French, but the French, pressed by the Germans, began to treat the people they picked up much more severely. And all through 1942, they put them in detention in different prisons around France. And what they found was that this was not acting as a deterrent. And they even shot some of the men, and they deported some of the women to labour camps, and nothing seemed to check the ever-growing number of resistant attacks. So what they decided to do was to use a policy which they had first used in Germany, which was called Nacht und Nebel, Night and Fog, which was to disappear a number of people so that their families and the villages and their wider communities didn't know where they were. They didn't have the certainty that they were dead. And the idea was that if you didn't know, you'd all behave rather better because you might jeopardise the lives of the people who disappeared. So they put a number of men-resistant onto two trains. And then they thought, well, we'll do one of women. So they looked around to to a good group. Now, these women, who I was on this particular train, had done resistance activities all over occupied France. But they had all been gathered together in Romainville, which is a fort just on the edge of Paris. And they'd been there for about six months and there were 200, there were slightly more, but there were reasons why the others weren't included. And they thought, we'll send off these 230 women. And the youngest was a schoolgirl called Rosa, 15, and the eldest was a farmer's wife of 68. And in between were teachers and secretaries and farmer's wives and um, everybody you could possibly imagine, biochemists, a doctor, Um, and they were put on this train for Auschwitz and I think what made them special was that they were friends because during the time in Romaville they had looked after each other they had kept each other's spirits up because some of their husbands and lovers were shot and they had put on plays from what they remembered and they shared any food they had and to while away the long days they taught each other everything they knew so the philosophers taught philosophy that, um, One of the women I talked to was very young at the time and she said it was extraordinary. She'd come from Wren and she'd had very little education and she found herself with all these incredibly educated, intelligent women and she said it was like going to university. Every day I I sat listening and I learnt things. So what made them sort of special is when they were herded onto this train in January 1943, they had no idea where they were going. Um, It was as, as a group of friends... And one of the women who I saw later said to me, you have to understand that by the time we got to Auschwitz, anybody's death was no better nor worse nor our, than our own. I mean, we minded each death as much, and what we wanted to do was look after each other.
1: And what happened to them once they arrived in Auschwitz? Were they, did they do forced labour, or were they just executed?
2: Because they were not Jewish... I mean, two of the women on the train were Jewish, but they weren't on the train because they were Jewish, Mm. because they were in the resistance. They were not immediately sent to the gas chambers. They were put with all the other women who were workers. And after, they had two weeks in quarantine, and then they were put to work. But what was very touching in a way and very noticeable was that the old ones and the very young ones died very quickly. And it wasn't always clear why they died. I mean, quite a lot were dead within 10 days. I mean, they weren't dead of hunger by then. Um, They were sort of dead of horror, of the sheer grisly horror and shock of what they were encountering. Um, So that by, you know, the the numbers went down all the time. And then in February, there was a terrible day when, each day started with the roll call. They were got up at about three o'clock. And if you think that um, Auschwitz is in Poland, and it's very, very cold and snowy. And they would be got up at Opost 3, and they would be marched out. And they had to stand for the roll call. And unless the numbers tallied, it started again. So sometimes these roll calls lasted two hours. And they had very little to wear. And they were freezing cold and wretched and miserable. And on one day, on March, um, I think it was February the 10th, 1943, they were marched out. And then at the end of two hours nothing happened three hours they were still standing there four hours and all over this enormous field it was a very sunny day the women started falling over and died Mm -hmm. and one by one all over the field there were these women falling and at about half past three orders were given for them to go back and they sort of shuffled and hopped each other back and as they got near to the camp um, one of the women at the front shouted run run you have to run so they, as much as they could, they sort of shuffled their way through. Because, as they approached the the gates, the German SS um, and the couples had lined up, making a sort of corridor down which these women had to run, and they beat them very hard. And that day, a thousand women died, of whom fourteen were from this train. And it was because of Stalingrad because the Allies were making progress, was to punish the rest and so on. So they lost 14 that day. And then in the summer of 43, a group were moved to an experimental biological station. And they did that because one of them was a biochemist. And they were trying to work on um, plants which made rubber. And they'd found this from, I think, the Russian campaign. So they wanted biochemists so they asked this woman and she said yes and then they said to this woman and do you know any other biochemists and she said well yes we happen to have 14 in our group some of them would say later they couldn't tell a potato from a dandelion but they were all got off to this so about 30 of them actually got to them where they were better treated and then what happened and this is a mysterious thing is sometime that autumn suddenly the remaining women were moved to a quarantined barrack would probably save their lives, and um, there's no way of knowing why that happened. I mean, I went through all the archives in Auschwitz and in Berlin and in Paris, and there's no way of knowing why this order went out for this group of women to be taken out. It may have been because the Germans envisaged a need to protect, and for, the, for later on, for the end of the war, they wanted to look slightly good. It may have been these women were, were quite well known in France, and there were. There was a lot of fuss being made about where they'd gone and so on. But anyway, that in a sense saved the group. And then towards the end of that year, that group, the remaining, plus the ones at the biological station, there were then 52 of them still alive, were moved to Ravensbrück, which was not an extermination camp. And though it was, it, many, many women died in Ravensbrück, and indeed many women were murdered, not my group weren't. They survived to the very end of the war in, in Ravensbrück.
1: And what sorts of records were you looking at then?
2: When the, the Russians were approaching Auschwitz, the Germans started destroying records, but many, many were left. Um, the Germans were these phenomenal keeper of documents. So, in fact, there were a lot of records. And the other thing is that they took pictures of the women um, and pictures of the women from my train have survived, quite a lot of them, not all of them. And again in Revensbrook they kept meticulous records and they weren't really able to get rid of all of them. And then you have to remember from the other side, the French um, first of all the French police I mean one of the best bits of my research was in the police, Paris police archives because there I found records of the of the hunt for the women and the way that when they got, they thought they got onto a group in Paris they didn't know what their names were so they followed the various people who they thought and they gave them the names of the metro stations and what you find in these amazing archives are these accounts by, written by inspectors in that careful hands saying picked up Odeon at 9.15 this morning brackets one metre, 52, wearing a green scarf and everything. And what was so fascinating for me was by then I knew who these women were. And reading through these accounts, I realised what was going to happen to them. Whereas Mm. while it was happening, they, of course, did not know they were Mm. being followed, Mm. which gave a sort of spooky feeling. Mm. And then there are wonderful French resistance archives, both at the Ministry of Defence in Caen and in Paris, where at the end of the war they put together dossiers on as many people as they could because they were entitled to pension. So these dossiers, not for everybody, but there is quite a lot of material. I mean, I found a massive material. And when you
1: interviewed these women, how... I I don't even know how you go about remembering that kind of experience, but what was the overall impression from
2: them and how, how did they speak about their experiences? Um... A number of things played into that. One was that, by and large, they hadn't really ever spoken much about it. And so when they started talking, they sort of couldn't stop. The other thing was that it had been both so terrible, but also such a, such a strong thing about friendship that they remembered it all incredibly vividly. Um, and, of course, the ones I met, who were still alive in the last few years were by their nature very strong women because they mm. not only survived everything but they had lived till they were 90. Yeah. And these were sort of formidable and wonderful women and they were both very uh, articulate about everything that had happened and very robust and very tough, tough-minded about themselves, humorous. They were, they were completely wonderful, these women.
0: Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact